Let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And I'll begin reading in verse 16, and we'll read through verse 3 of chapter 4. Ecclesiastes 3.16. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born, who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. I think before I start preaching, I want to say that tonight is not one of the happiest of sermons. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's going to be hard to hear, and it's going to be hard for me to even say, um, because tonight we go to places that we really don't want to go to, and we are going to see things that we don't really want to want to see. And so it's appropriate that before we preached, we sang Christ is coming, and we need to remember that throughout this whole sermon, that this sermon is the bad part of the story, and there is coming a point when Christ will come, Amen. and all of this will be put away. So keep that in mind, and um, let's hear the word of God. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence 
that deprive me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. So wrote Ellie Wiesel in his book, Night. Auschwitz murdered his God and his soul. And unless we have some arrogant thought of the strength of our own faith and of our own theology, we must remember that it was not us who were swept away by injustice, but it was him. A few uh, months into his time at Auschwitz, he saw a child hanged. And the boy struggled for a half an hour in the noose, and everyone was forced to watch. And he writes, Behind me, I heard a man asking, Where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, Where he is, this is where, hanging here from this gallows. If you thought Ecclesiastes was, as someone said, a bit depressing, but strangely encouraging and refreshing, then you need to hold on to your hat. You haven't walked all the way with Koaleth. And if we're going to learn what Ecclesiastes has to teach us, then we need to take his hand and walk all the way. So tonight he's going to take us to the abortion clinic. He's going to take us to the slums of Brazil. He's going to take us through the gates of Auschwitz. And as I said, he's going to take us places where we do not want to go. And he makes us stare at injustice and oppression. And he's going to give us one of God's purposes behind it. And he'll give us a response and a warning. So that's sort of where we're going. Um, The hard facts of injustice and oppression, one of God's purposes for it, a response and a warning. Well, last week we said that God is is the sovereign of time. He's um, the master weaver. And he is weaving together everyone's lives and there's a time for everything under the sun and it's God's time, it's not ours. And men build and then they tear down the same building and they plant and then they uh, uproot and they are born and then they die. There's a time for everything under the sun, for every activity under heaven. And we saw that how that was a burden to us because as when a weaver is weaving something in the loom on the underside, there's nothing but knots and tangles and it's not a very pretty picture. And that is where humanity is. God is weaving together something beautiful, and yet we can't see it. We have a hard time understanding what he's doing in this, in this making of this tapestry, and that is a burden to us. It's, it's a havel. We can't see the finished product. And so what did he say to do? He said, enjoy life, keep doing good, and fear God. Those three things. Enjoy life, do good, fear God. And, but that's not the end of the story. We haven't walked all the way yet. He ended up by saying, God is going to judge this whole thing. And he is going to 
look at all this and he's going to examine everything. And it's this thought, this thought of judgment, that jolts Coleth into thinking of another Havel, another part of the curse. And it's the Havel of injustice. Look at what the Word of God says in verse, in chapter 3, verse 16. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. You've seen those children's, um, those children's books, pictures or books or activity books where they show uh, this picture and everything is out of place, you know? And so there's a shoe up in a tree and then there's this baby pushing a, uh, a mom in the baby stroller. And, you know, it's kind of funny and, it's, and they're supposed to figure out what's wrong with the picture. And this is coalesce kind of sickening, terrible version of that. Find what is out of place in the courtroom where blind justice is supposed to be, instead of justice, there's wickedness. Instead of equity, there are bribes. Instead of the rule of law, there's politics. Instead of righteousness, there is evil. And things are not where they should be. Things are not what they should be. And since, and since the fall, injustice has marked Man and the affairs of men. So brutal Cain goes for a walk with innocent Abel and slaughters him. And Lamech, the seventh from Cain, boasts to his wives, Ada and Zillah, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. So young man injures Lamech. And Lamech will avenge 77 times. It's not a tooth for a tooth. It's not an eye for an eye. It's a life for a tooth and a life for an eye. And we can go into the courtrooms of our land. And justices take it upon themselves to be, to write and create law. Instead of judging according to law, they make law. They're a law to themselves. And every man does what is right in his own eyes. And justice has fallen in the streets. Since 1973, the highest court in our land says it is right to wage chemical warfare on a fetus in its mother's womb. It's right, it's legitimate to cut and maim a baby in the protective place, hiding place of his mother's own body. And the Supreme Court calls it a right. And the mothers do it. So where there should be defense, there's attack. Where men should be standing up for the innocent, they are attacking the innocent and the weak. In the place of justice, there is wickedness. And in the place of protection, there's murder. And the Supreme Court has Havel written all over it. Injustice is part of living in a God-cursed world. God gives men over to to their sin And in their sinfulness, men destroy justice. And so, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when the courts go haywire. Don't be surprised when you find men taking bribes. Don't be surprised when men corrupt impartiality for political gain. This is a fallen, it's a twisted world, and injustice is inevitable. 
It's not what it's supposed to be. And it should make us yearn for God's justice, for God's judgment. Men's justice has failed. And we need God to judge. And his judgment is still waiting. Look at verse 17. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. So Coleth looks at this situation that, that he was facing and that all of us face. He looks at injustice and he responds in faith. He says, I know justice is coming. It, there seems to be a time and a place for everything, everything except for justice. And yet he says, there is going to be a time and a place for that too. In God's time, God will judge the wicked and the righteous. Every wrong will be righted. God will take justice, will give justice to every aborted baby. God will give justice to every incinerated child in Auschwitz. God will give justice to that boy who was hanged. And justice is scarce now. It's a scarce commodity, but it's coming. It's coming. And the question comes, why the wait? Why the wait? Why doesn't God send justice now? Where is God? In verses 18 through 20, Coleth tells us one of the reasons that God uh, lets injustice go on and on, despite the prayers of his people, despite the work of his people. Why is just injustice just keep going on? Verse 18, I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. One reason that God allows injustice is so that men can see what they are, what they're like. God is testing man. He's giving man a a full opportunity to show what they're made of. What's the quality of a man? Well, God gives us an opportunity. He puts the test before us. And how do we do? How do we do on the test? We fail miserably. We're like animals, he says. We're like animals. In our culture, in our societies, we show ourselves to be no better than beasts. You can say, well, how so? How so? Well, when we give up justice, then we're giving something up of our humanity. When we give up justice, we act like animals. And it doesn't, see, it doesn't take much long to see how true this is. If you look around, many people treat their pets better than their children. And orphans are denied their rights. Widows are sold for a loaf of bread. The elderly are conned and their money is taken from them. The poor who can't afford legal representation are just given over to governments and to corporations. And the only law fallen humanity knows is the law of the jungle. Only the strong survive and everyone else is going to be devoured. And see, total depravity, it's at work. It's not only at work in our hearts as individuals, but it reaches into everything that we do. It warps everything about humanity. And God withholds justice so that we can see 
how bad we are. See, we aren't basically good. That is one of the most resilient ideas in humanity's mind. That no matter what they see, they say, oh, we're basically good. But we're not basically good. We're basically beastly. And it doesn't take much for our animal-like hearts to come out. So what do you think would happen if for some reason our government and our police and our civil authorities weren't around to keep order? Let's say for some reason our government and all, all of that fell apart tonight. How long do you think it would take before men started looting and pillaging and murdering and mayhem and rape? It probably wouldn't be longer than a few hours. And we would be at each other's throats. And it's only God's restraining hand that keeps injustice at bay. It keeps us from destroying ourselves in a day. And that's what we are. And God wants us to know that. As fallen humanity, that is what we are. Maybe you saw the story uh, this week of the Guatemalan immigrant who was left for dead in New York City. Um, He saw a man and a woman fighting, and he intervened to help, and the man stabbed him several times. And then the man and the woman ran off. And so there he lay for an hour. And people walked by and did nothing to help. And one nearby resident, when asked about it, asked, you know, commented, she said this, is anybody human anymore? What's wrong with humanity? And those are exactly the questions that injustice should make us ask. Those are the questions that God wants us to ask of ourselves. What is wrong with us? We live like animals. And so Ecclesiastes goes on and says, we die like animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is Havel. All go to the same place. All come from dust. And to dust, all return. Man and beast. We act the same. And we die the same. Man and animal both have the same breath, the same life principle, the same spirit of of life in us. And we're both destined for the grave. Everything, as he says, is Havel. Everything is bound to fall apart. Everything is coming apart. Everything is quickly here and gone. Animal and man. And how frail we are. Breath and dust are not a stable combination, are they? We live here our 70 years and 80 if God gives us strength. And then we fall back into dust. And Koleth puts it into such stark terms because he wants us to take death seriously. Our cat not too long ago brought us a present. Maybe your cats do that sometimes. And he killed a bird and he left it on our stoop. And so there it was. It's little still corpse was sitting there. And 
Without much thought, my wife kicked it off the stoop and into our uh, landscaping to disintegrate. And one day, we will be as dead as that bird. And men will take us away and put us into the ground to disintegrate. And ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And we have no advantage. You have no advantage over the bird. You will die unless God returns, unless Christ returns. And he wants us to take that to heart. He wants us to see how fleeting our life is and how sure death is. He's going to come back to this again and again until he's nailed that fact into our head that we are going to die. Well, we need to be careful with all this statement, with this statement, and, and not take it for more than what he's, he means by it. The similarity between man and beast is only physical. And some, some scholars think that he's denying the resurrection, that he's saying that men are animals, that you know, they act like it, they are that, and that's all humanity is. And once we die, that's it, that's the end of the story. Um, their physical fate is totally similar. But that isn't the end of the story for man. You know, we act like animals and we die like animals, but the end of the story is different. And I have three reasons that I can say that. One, Koalath has already told us that God has put eternity into our hearts. Okay? And whatever that means, it means that there is something in us that was made for eternity. Two, he's already said that he will bring everything into judgment. There is a future judgment that no one escapes. There is injustice here, but there is not always going to be that injustice. There is a time for everyone, the righteous and the wicked, to face God. He's already said that. The righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be punished. And justice will be done. And obviously, it is not being done here. And so that means there must be a time and a place for man to face judgment. So it's not clear, it's not the end of the story that we die, we go to the grave, and that's it. And then three, we know the similarity between animal and beast is not absolute because of what Coalesce says next in verse 21. So look at verse 21. <clears throat> now, the NIV translates it um, as a question of uncertainty. And you can, you can see it there. Who knows if the spirit of man goes upward and if the spirit of animal goes down into the earth? Who knows what happens? You know, some say there's a difference between man and beast, but who really knows? So do you hear the question of uncertainty? We don't, you know, we don't know what happens. That's how the NIV sort of portrays it. And I don't think that's the best way to understand uh, this verse, um, to take it as a question of uncertainty. The word, excuse me, the word if isn't there in the Hebrew. It, the translators have put it there in order to make sense of the question. Um, the New American Standard and other translations have it as, who knows that the spirit of man goes upward and that the spirit of an animal goes down to the earth. So it's not a question of uncertainty. It's a rhetorical question. And the NIV gives a similar uh, alternative in the footnote. And, and you could read that on your own. 
Um, Coleth is not doubting the difference between man and beast. He's not saying that they're totally the same. He's saying, who knows this? Who's thinking about this? This is a rhetorical question. Who's thinking that I'm going to face God and I'm not like an animal? Because if I was really thinking that I was going to face God, then I wouldn't act with such injustice. But it doesn't enter into anyone's mind. So people go through their life living however they want. They're, an, they're autonomous. They're a law to themselves. I will do what I want. They don't care about justice. And so it's nothing for them to defraud, to rob, to oppress. And it's nothing for them to see it happen to other people and to do nothing. Because, as we heard this morning, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. And no one's thinking that I'm going to face judgment, so I can do whatever I want. But Kola says they don't realize that no one gets a free pass. They think their death is the end. They think their death is the escape from justice. But God is waiting at the end. And He will have justice. And so while they might live and they might die like an animal, their final fate is different. Their soul will go up to God. There is a time and a place for judgment, and each and every one of us is going to be there. So no one be fooled. Death is not your escape from justice. Death is the guarantee that you will see justice. And so if any of you think you can make it out of this life and commit any kind of injustice that you want, and you'll never have to face human justice, and that's good enough for you, there is one courtroom that you will not escape, that you cannot skip, and it's the courtroom of God. There is very little justice here. But one day, you will see justice. And God is working on his own timetable. There's a time for it, and it's God's time. Well, then the question is, how do I respond to this? How do I respond to injustice? Um, We're kind of down in the dumps and saying, well, what can I do against such evil when men are totally, they're beastly and they treat each other horribly what can we do against such evil? And here, Coalesh surprises us. And he hits us with his divinely given wisdom again. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man to do than to enjoy his work. Because that is his lot. There's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work. Because that is his lot. Isn't that a surprising suggestion? He tells you in the face of injustice to enjoy your life. And you would think that he would say something like, go to battle, fight for justice, let nothing stop you, live and die and sacrifice in order to have justice. But he doesn't say that. He says, enjoy your work. And here, that work... it encompasses everything that humanity does, everything that we do. Um, enjoy your job. Yeah, you're going to be treated unfairly at your job place. That is a fact. That is reality. But he says, enjoy your job. 
Enjoy it anyways. This is your lot. God has given it to you. So enjoy your family. Enjoy eating and drinking. Enjoy planning and purchasing. Enjoy what God has given you to do. Enjoy it all. And maybe we're saying, how can he say that? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And it shows that we're not, we're not catching on yet, right? We're not getting it. He gives us the reason in the next sentence. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? So here's why you enjoy it. Because you are going to die. And after that, everything that happens in the world will mean nothing to you. Everything that happens under the sun you will be beyond your concern. The loose ends of your life and the wrongs, the injustices that you face, all of those things, a lot of them are not going to be tied up before you die. And you're never going to see how God works out some of those things because you'll be gone. Injustice and injustice will go on in this world until the end, but you won't. You will die. And you only have one life. And it's limited in scope. You only have so much time, so much energy, and your interest in earthly things and earthly injustice and justice will come to an end at one point. And so don't forfeit God's gift to you. Don't forfeit life. Because it will soon be gone. And all your cares here, all your cares under the sun will be over. So brothers and sisters, we can enjoy life. And we can enjoy life in the face of injustice because God is guaranteeing justice. That's why we can do this. Because we don't have to be on some mission to make sure that all justice is righted. Because in the final scheme of things, justice is in God's hands. It's God's problem. And so we can relax. We can be His children. And we can enjoy the life that He is giving to us. So we've seen the havel of injustice. We've seen God's purpose for it. He wants us to show man how bad we are. And we've seen our response, that you enjoy life. Now finally, a warning. And the warning is found in chapter 4, verses 1-3. through three. And the connection between all these sections are kind of tentative, but the connection between uh, chapter 4 and chapter 3, I think, will be clear. Let me just read uh, verse 1 there. Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. So the connection between these verses and the verses that went before it, it follows because oppression is the flip side of injustice. The victims of injustice are the oppressed. And so, while we should think about God's future judgment and our privilege and responsibility to enjoy life when we think about injustice, we need to take the next verses to heart. This is a warning to us in the way that we look at the oppressed, the way that we look at them and try to help them. And this is going to provide balance provide balance to our response to injustice. 
We can't just say, enjoy life and don't care about anyone else but yourself. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Well, why don't they have a comforter? Because power was on the side of their oppressors, and and they have no comforter. The people in authority, the people who were supposed to be in the place of justice, are the people who have power, and they are the people who are oppressing them. The very ones that should be protecting them against injustice are the ones who are perpetrating it upon them. And so I declared that the dead who are already dead are happier than they who are living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. It's better to be dead sometimes than to face the evil that is done under the sun. And if you're saying to yourself, how how can that be? How can Cola say that? How can it be better never to be born than to be born? I mean, is, is he arguing with God? God calls and the baby is born. And what about future judgment? What about God's sovereignty that he makes everything beautiful in its time? And if you're asking those kinds of questions... Like, I think we have a tendency to do when we come to something like this. Then you aren't seeing what Koaleth saw with his eyes. You're not getting it. We're not getting it. If we're coming at it from a theoretical point of view. He says, I saw the tears of the oppressed. And the oppression is vivid. And he speaks out of the overflow of his heart and not out of a theological position. Because he says, I saw the tears and it tore me up. And it's hard for us to hear this and understand what he's saying. Can it be really that bad that you would wish to die or never even to be born? It's hard for us to hear that and understand it Because our lives are so good. We're living in what someone called the Disney world of the universe. Everything is fun. Everything is easy and delicious. And we don't see the tears of the oppressed. We don't see it. And so we can come to this passage and ask all sorts of questions that were never meant to be asked of it. In the world right now, there are 5.7 million child slaves hidden away and exploited and no one sees them there are another 2 million sex slaves children around the world there's 100,000 girls in the United States who are sex slaves and we don't see them it's like they're not there But they are. They are there. And their tears are real. And the oppression is real. In Brazil, it's estimated that 400 street children every month are killed by off-duty police officers. So, businesses hire the off-duty police officer to take care of a problem. And every month, 400 children are taken care of. 
and no one looks into it, and prosecution is nearly impossible, and no one sees the tears of the oppressed. And we can go to the Holocaust, where we began, where people like you and me, just normal people, the normal people who would never think that they would ever see or do anything like what happened, they watched Jews herded into cattle cars by the hundreds and thousands and taken away, and they didn't do anything. And you can read sometime, read sometime Night by Elie Wiesel, or look at the pictures from Darfur in the Sudan. Look at women whose bodies are destroyed and children with hands hacked off and vengeance. And watch a documentary sometime on the Rwandan genocide and see the piles of bones, of human bones just stacked up. And Coalesce says, if you haven't seen it, don't you dare tell me that it was better for them to be alive than to not have ever seen it. Don't dare tell me it's not better to be dead or never have been born than to see the oppression, the evil that men do to each other. Because the oppression in this world is real, and it is awful. And future judgment doesn't make it all better. It doesn't make it all better now. And the thought of God's sovereignty and how he's making everything beautiful in this time, it doesn't make it all better now. Those are sweet realities, aren't they? They're sweet, they're strong, they're good, and I love them and you love them, but we can't make them do things that they can't do. Future judgment and God's sovereignty, they don't mitigate the oppression that is going on in the world now, the suffering of the oppressed. And we can't act like they do. We can't glibly say to a devastated person, Oh, God works all things together for good. Now, we can say those things, but we can't glibly say it. And we can't say, oh, don't worry. God's judgment, it is coming and everything's going to be right. So don't worry about it. We can't put a band-aid on a gaping wound. Oppression should tear us up. Future judgment and God's sovereignty are real. They're good there's hope there. And those things help us, brothers and sisters, to enjoy this life, don't they? I just said that. They help us to enjoy this life. But we have to realize that there are some people who, whose families have been torn apart. And they can't enjoy life and their children and their husbands and their wives because they've been taken from them. And their jobs have been stolen from them. And so they don't have any way of supplying the needs of their family. And future judgment doesn't make it better now. And we can't act and think like it does. They do need to know about those things. But more than that, they need to know about a God who understands oppression. And a God who acted to end it. Because he came in the person of Jesus Christ. And listen again to some of Isaiah 53. And listen to it from the perspective of Ecclesiastes. He was oppressed and afflicted. 
Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. By oppression, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was swept away by injustice. And he was cut off from the land of the living. And so God in the person of Jesus Christ entered into this world of abortion and entered into this world of genocide and economic oppression and slavery and oppression swept him away. And he stood in the place of judgment and there was no justice. There was wickedness. And he got injustice. Does that amaze you? That when the Son of God was, came to earth and he was put on trial by sinful men, he, instead of justice, got injustice. Doesn't it amaze you that God didn't obliterate the world just like that? But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For the transgression of my people, God says, he was stricken. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So we are the beasts. And Jesus Christ is our Savior. And he was making intercession for us. He was facing injustice for us. And so, oh yes, God knows oppression. The Lamb who was slain is on the throne. And so what do we do? What do we do in the face of injustice? Well, we look forward to future judgment where all the wrongs will be righted. We look and we hope for that. That's real and that's good and that's precious. And we enjoy life. When God gives us something to enjoy, we enjoy it because we're going to die very soon and all this injustice and justice, all these concerns are going to be over for us. So we got to enjoy life as God gives it to us. And we have to go to the cross to find comfort, to find an answer. We don't minimize the sorrow of the oppressed. We maximize Jesus Christ. So we don't say, oh, it's not a big deal. We say it was such a big deal that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to die to end this oppression. So we can't put some pat, easy answer on this world's problems and the, and the injustices that people face. We can't put a, a band-aid on a gaping wound. God did not give a pat answer. He didn't minimize sorrow and oppression. He maximized Jesus Christ. He held him forth. And so how should we respond to Eli Wiesel at the very beginning when he said, there was nothing there that night but silence. There was nothing under the sky except silence and ashes and Obviously, God was not there, is what he is saying. Well, what do we say? We say God is not silent. God is not silent. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus Christ came, and he died, and he faced oppression and injustice so that one day, oppression will cease. It will be over. And when he comes back, he is coming in power and glory. We saw it in Daniel in Sunday school. 
His kingdom will smash all other kingdoms and every kingdom and every power will be put under His feet. And one in that day, oppression will be over. So brothers and sisters, we can stare the hard, hard, unpleasant realities of life in the face. We can look at them. We don't have to pretend like they're not there. We can look at them because Jesus Christ stared them in the face. And He overcame them. And He is our only hope. He is our only hope. He's our only trust. And so, let's praise Him. Our Heavenly Father, we don't know what to say to such grace and such goodness that You would send Your Son to such a place as this where men do such horrible things to each other And that grace amazes us. That all that Jesus Christ did, it was for sinners' gain. That He should love us, ugly and beastly though we were. Thank You that we are not that anymore by Your grace. You're transforming us. You're sanctifying us. You're making us more like Jesus. We thank you for having mercy on us. When we look from the rock from which we were dug, we realize that there is nothing in us that was beautiful or charming or anything that you would love us. There's no reason for you to choose us. There was no reason for you to send your son to die for us. And so we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your pity. Thank you for your great patience your great patience with us who are so slow to believe, so slow to grow. Thank you for your patience with humanity that you are holding back your judgment, that that the gospel would go forth and that men might repent and believe. Will you help us to be about the business of proclaiming peace? through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you that we can enjoy life in the face of injustice because you are the sovereign and that you hold all things in your hand and that you will bring all things to a good and proper end. And we love you. We ask that you would help us to love you more. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.